Saved, saved, saved. Saved from what? A student at the University of North Carolina asked me. I've heard that my whole life. What do I need to be saved from? And it wasn't one of the most profound, pointed questions a pagan ever asked me. You need to be saved from the coming eternal wrath of God Almighty. Listen, the cruelest thing for me to do is to know what the Scripture says and not to warn people of it. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part three in the conclusion of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, From Here to Eternity. We have studied the contrast in the lives and deaths of the rich man and Lazarus, and today, Pastor Carl will be preaching on their eternities. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. And so uh, this man had some kind of congenital defect, we're not told. Maybe he had severe club feet, we're not told precisely. But the text does say he was lame from his mother's womb. He never knew a healthy day. His legs were limp and spongy like a dish rag. And so what did you do with such a man? You laid him at the gate. Why? Because he could only do one thing. Beg. Why could he only beg? Because of a theologically driven precept that was false. And I've discussed this with you before when I taught John 9. Do you remember in John 9 when the disciples saw this man who is congenitally blind, blind from birth? And they asked him this question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? It was a well-established, popular teaching of the day that if you were born with some kind of, quote-unquote, malfunction, but God doesn't make mistakes, he uses even the fall for his own glory and all the challenges that come with it. But nonetheless, the popular teaching was if you were born that way, it was either because of your parents' sin or your sin, your sin in the womb. And so they're asking, Lord, what's the case with him? Did his dad and mom sin? Or did he sin in the womb? Now that would seem to be a terrible punishment that you were born blind because of some sin your parents committed or even that you committed in the womb. And they took a verse from Exodus 20 out of context where it speaks of the iniquity of the parents going to the second and third generations. I have a whole sermon on it if you want to study it. But what it meant was even if you could come up with some kind of employment by which you could make money, you were a marked man. You weren't allowed for such employment because you were viewed as soiled and use goods. So what did you do? You begged. Lazarus was laid at his gate, and that shouted volumes to any first century reader. His plight is that of a beggar. Further, we're told that his body was covered with sores, probably due to malnutrition. Verse 21, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table, besides even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. He just wanted a few scraps, few bits of food, few crumbs. They probably just threw it out like throwing food out for the stray cats in the neighborhood. Maybe one of the servants had compassion because this man certainly didn't. Hey, give these leftovers, give them to Lazarus. Add to that, dogs were coming and licking his sores only to add to his misery. So here are these two men about 30 yards apart but they are worlds apart in their lifestyle. 
That's the contrast in their lives. Secondly, let's think further about the contrast in their deaths, the contrast in their deaths. Look, if you will, now at verse 22. Now, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. By the way, the word Lazarus is Eleazar in Hebrew, and it literally means God helps. It may be that the reason, if this is a parable, that Jesus names the person is he wants to underscore that God helps, that God sees, that God sees the plight of every person on the planet, that God cares, and he wants to underscore that truth. In either case, Lazarus dies, and some angels come, and they carry him away to Abraham's bosom. People may not have cared for him in this world, but God cared for him. God loved him, and he sends some of his angels. I've done literally hundreds of funerals. I know over 500. And over the decades, I've asked, people have asked me, well, my, my mother, she died alone. I wish I could have been there. Or, or my, my daughter, she died alone. My little girl, she died alone. No one dies alone. Not among the people of God. God sends his welcoming angels and they carry us to that place of rest, rest. And in this case, it's called Abraham's bosom. It's also known as paradise. It's also known as Sheol. It's also known as Hades. Now remember, every Jew, virtually every Jew in the first century didn't read the Hebrew scriptures. They lost their ability after the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations. So what did they read? They read the Greek Old Testament. And the Greek Old Testament whether it's righteous Hades or unrighteous Hades, it's the same word. In Hebrew, it's Sheol. In Greek, it's Hades. We think of the word Hades, and we think of it negatively. Today, the only way to think of it is negatively, because only unrighteous Hades continues. But in Jesus' day, there were two compartments to Hades. There was righteous Sheol or righteous Hades, and there was unrighteous Sheol or unrighteous Hades. There was Abraham's bosom, which is a beautiful picture of the place a believer would go. Why? Because of who Abraham is. He's the father of us all, the apostle Paul says, and he's three times in scripture on both sides of the Bible called a friend of God. He was a true believer, and so he obviously went to the place of blessing, and that's where Lazarus goes. By contrast, notice, the rich man also died and was buried. So the Lord mentions the rich man's burial, but he doesn't mention Lazarus's burial. Why? Because if the first century historians are correct, for a beggar or crucified man or vagrants, they were just thrown into a common grave. But this guy was rich, and I'm sure it was quite an affair. I'm sure they did it up big. And I'm sure they were probably already going after what he left. Look, you can have a big funeral with all the hoopla and a big reception. But if you don't know Jesus, it's a big zero. He's living it up. But then he dies. He's buried. And let me say parenthetically, again, if you know your Bible... He doesn't go to hell because he's rich. Abraham, the father of the faithful, is one of the richest men in all of Scripture. He goes to hell because he's an unbeliever. He's not welcomed by the angels of God into the presence of God. He's brought into a place of judgment. 
People talk about the grim reaper. They talk about the death angel. That's all fable. That's found nowhere in Holy Scripture. For that matter, sometimes people say, well, when a lost man dies, Satan gets his soul. Satan doesn't get his soul. Satan's not even in Hades. And as we've seen in this series, when Satan ultimately is thrown into the lake of fire, the final resting place where Hades and all in it end up, he's not torturing people with a pitchfork. He himself is tormented day and night like all the lost people that are there. Now there's the contrast in their lives, there's the contrast in their deaths finally, the contrast in their eternities. I want you to think about the contrast in their eternities. Look now, if you will, at verse 23 in Hades. He lifted up his eyes being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. So he's not far from Lazarus and yet he's a world apart. He's in a place of torment and pain whereas Lazarus is in a place of comfort and care, Abraham's bosom. And we'll talk a little bit further about that in the weeks ahead. Today, post-ascension, the moment a person dies, he doesn't go to righteous Sheol. He goes home to be with the Lord. He's in the Father's house. But remember, this is before the cross. This is before in time and space Jesus died and bled and was raised and made an eternal payment. So they went to Old Testament paradise. And an unbeliever went to Old Testament Hades. And with that said, they are given some kind of a temporal body. Look, if your loved one has died and gone home to the Father's house, he doesn't have a resurrection body yet. He's awaiting that. No one has been resurrected except Christ and a small handful of Old Testament saints on Resurrection Sunday. Still all in the future. But there's some kind of resurrection body that is given, and they're awaiting that. They're looking forward to that. We'll come to that in a moment. But let me just say, in the end, the unbeliever will have a body suited for help, but even in Hades, the unbeliever has some kind of temporal body where he can feel pain, and torment. And the believer who went to Sheol, he was given some kind of a body. Do you remember the prophet Samuel? He comes up out of Sheol and he visits King Saul. He's in some kind of a body, but remember the Old Testament saints aren't raised until the end of the tribulation, Daniel 12, 1 and 2. But Jesus is very clear here that there's a life to live, there's a death to die, there's an eternity to face. And my Jehovah's Witness and Seventh-day Adventist friends who say we are annihilated and we just cease to exist have warped and twisted the scriptures to their own destruction. My wife and I went to Massachusetts on a trip to visit my mom before she died. And in our near 43 years of marriage, for whatever reason, we like to go into graveyards. And we saw this old graveyard, and we went in, and here's a picture of a grave we saw. There were five graves with this slogan on it. This is the grave of Sarah Cutter. I don't know if you can make it out. She was 39 years old. She died in 1777. And written on her tombstone were these words, Pause, stranger, as you pass me by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. Prepare to die and follow me. And on one of those five graves, it was very faint, hard to read. I didn't put it up here because you couldn't even begin to read it. But it said this, to follow you, I am not content until I know which way you went. <laughs> now, I don't know if a friend put that on there or who did it. 
But listen, we're going to die. And there's a contrast here. We're told in Hades, he lifted up his eyes being in torment. Now, over the years, I've been called ignorant, uneducated, uncaring, because I describe hell the way Jesus describes hell as a place of actual torment. And people say, oh, that's just folklore. That's just ignorance. And the average evangelical pulpit no longer even preaches on hell. And if this is your first Sunday, you say, oh, this brogy is a hellfire damnation preacher. <laughs> I don't preach on hell every week. But when it's in the text, I do. And I'm to warn people. Saved, saved, saved. Saved from what? A student at the University of North Carolina asked me. I've heard that my whole life. What do I need to be saved from? And it was one of the most profound, pointed questions a pagan ever asked me. You need to be saved from the coming eternal wrath of God Almighty. Listen, the cruelest thing for me to do is to know what the Scripture says and not to warn people of it. So the lost man is in torment. Lazarus, the text says, is being comforted. And from all we know of that place, it's horrible. Look at verse 24. And he cried out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. He's Jewish. He's identifying as every Jew wanted to do with Father Abraham. But just because a Jew identified with Father Abraham didn't make it true. John chapter 8. Abraham is our father. Jesus said, if Abraham was your father, you'd do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are of your father, the devil. If you really knew the Lord like Abraham knew the Lord, you wouldn't live the kind of life you did. Your, your lifestyle denies that you have the faith of Abraham. And there'll be many confessing Christians at the end of time who are convinced they're going into heaven but they are actually on the broad road. They've entered through the wide gate that is headed to destruction. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. So here he is. He's in hell. He's in Hades. Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. Why? For I am in agony in this pain. Now listen, he's dead and buried, but the dead are not really dead. His body may have been decaying in a grave somewhere, but he's in some kind of a temporal body, and he can see, he can hear, he can speak, he can feel, he can taste, and he can remember he's very conscious, and he still thinks of himself with a feeling of superiority. Go get Lazarus and tell him to come here and to give me a little cold water for my tongue. And in the narrative, Abraham can't identify with him, notice. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life, you received your good things and likewise Lazarus' bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you're in agony. During his earthly life, the rich man enjoyed many good things. In the process, he was so captivated by those good things, he neglected preparation for his next life. And in the previous parable, just like the unjust steward, he was forward in his thinking for the temporal side of life, but not for the eternal things of life. And then he adds, and besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and none may be able to cross over from there to us. So the rich man could see and speak with Abraham but there's a great chasm fix, and it's fixed for all time. 
Again, his body's buried, but he's in some kind of a temporal body, and he's very, very much conscious. C.S. Lewis used to say that hell is locked on the inside. It's somewhat of a half-truth. It's true in the sense that if you go to hell, it's your fault. But God ultimately sends people to hell. It's an expression of his just and divine retribution. But people are there because they rejected the provision of the cross that was made for them. Not only is he conscious in hell, he's concerned in hell. Look at verse 27. And he said, then I beg you. The word beg here is the same word that was used of Lazarus. But now it's not Lazarus who's begging. It's the rich man who's begging. I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. Again, he he views Lazarus like a servant, and he asks Abraham to send Lazarus to his five brothers. Why? Because he knows his five brothers are like he is, unrepentant. He has this consciousness of what is beginning to happen and what is soaking in, and he, he remembers, and yes, people will remember when they are in hell. Some people will remember this sermon and this preacher pleading with them, earnestly begging them to be reconciled to God through Christ. He remembers the lost state of his five brothers. I will say that some people who are in Hades this morning have more concern for the lost than believers. Notice verse 29, Abraham's response. Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets. We'd say today they have the Old Testament. Let them hear them. Abraham pointed out that his five brothers had all of the necessary information they needed to repent. Just like men may deny there's a God, they know there's a God. Whenever you meet an atheist or an agnostic, you can confront him like Paul would in Romans 1 and remind them of truth. But know that he knows God, that God exists. He's a liar when he tells you, I didn't believe there was a God. I wasn't sure there was a God. That is a downright lie, and you should never put that in your testimony. Every man knows there's a God. Just like every man knows the Bible is the word of God. I'm not opposed to giving a polemic, especially for God's people, to ward off the fiery darts of the evil one. Why, we can prove this is the only book God wrote. But when I read it, when I preach it, when I share it, the unbeliever knows it's the word of God. Why? Because it's alive, it's living, it's active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Oh, but he said, no, Father Abraham, verse 30. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He thought some spectacular appearance from the dead would persuade them. Some monumentous sign would bring them to faith. Now, God may use a sign or a miracle to authenticate his word and the writers of the New Testament, but faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. It is the scripture that is the seed of God that brings about conversion by the Spirit. Even if someone comes from the dead, and the fact is Jesus did rise from the dead, and the fact is later on in the ministry of Christ, just a few weeks before he's crucified, one of his best friends, his name is also Lazarus, Eleazar, and he is raised from the dead. And what do the Pharisees want to do? Kill 
kill them. Kill the evidence. The rich man knew what his brothers must do that he did not do. He did not repent, and he was hoping maybe, maybe, just maybe. He said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Let me make three straightforward applications as we close. Number one, we must be conscious of God's coming eternal wrath. The rich man in Hades was conscious. He could see, he could hear, he could feel, he had memory, he had taste. Hell is a real place. It is a just expression of God's holy hatred for sin. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army that was once a great evangelistic movement. William Booth said, if I had my way, I would not give any of my workers a three-year training course in a seminary, but I would put each of them in hell for 24 hours. That would be the best training for earnest preaching that any Christian could have. And I would say amen. But I don't have to go to hell. I can read the texts of Scripture. Hell is an awful place. It's described as a place of torment. On one occasion, Jesus gave this warning. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into unquenchable fire. He was not obviously saying to literally cut off your right hand or literally pluck out your right eye or literally cut off your right foot because you'd still have the left foot, the left hand, the left eye in which to execute the sin. But Jesus is using hyperbole to say it would be far better to be a crippled saint than to be a healthy sinner. Hell is a place of torment. It's a place of separation. And we need to be conscious of it to fully appreciate what Jesus accomplished on the cross and for us to passionately share this good news. Secondly, that leads us to the second point. We must be concerned about the lost people we meet. We must be concerned. Do you live with the consciousness of the coming wrath of God so much so that you're concerned or are you like the me, myself, and I rich man who could care less? I believe there are people sitting here We have fathers and mothers and brothers and children and friends and neighbors and co-workers. They've never been in their prayer closet on their face before God asking for the person's conversion, much less try to share with them. Look, I can't preach someone into heaven if it's their funeral. I can't change their destiny. But it's a pleasure when you know the person was born again. They lived passionately for Jesus. You can give a sense of comfort. Look, we've got the best news the world can ever hear. That's why Paul asked the Colossians in Colossians 4, pray for me that God would give me more open doors of opportunity to preach the word. And when the opportunity comes, I can make it clear. I don't want to beg people to sign up for the Easter Blitz. I certainly don't want to guilt people into doing it. But if you believe that there's a real heaven and a real hell... You'll have some concern for the destiny of people. Third and finally, we must be convinced of our own personal salvation. Convinced. Not a hope so, I think so, but a no-so kind of salvation. A young Marine arriving home for leave, getting ready to go out for a night on the town of the bars, was given a gospel tract by his mother. 
He took it and he flung it on the floor. He said, I am sick and tired of you trying to badger me about your religion. Today, I was on the airplane and someone gave me a gospel tract. Everywhere I go, it seems like someone wants to talk to me about Jesus. Where can I go where I don't get these tracts? His mother said, Thomas, in hell, no one will give you a gospel tract. Hell is an awful place. It's a place of separation It's a place of separation from everything that is good and holy and pleasing. And typically, lost people never go to hell alone. They bring someone there with them. Look, people who are lost aren't concerned about their kids. They're not concerned about their grandkids. They're not concerned about their co-workers. In fact, Romans 1 says sometimes they can go so far into sin that they become evangelists for sin. If you go to hell, you won't typically go alone. If you go to hell and you die lost and you've heard this sermon, you will remember what you heard today from Buford, South Carolina, from the Word of God. You don't have to go to hell. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Call upon him. He will receive you today. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. There's no better time to be saved, Scripture teaches, than today. Today is the day of salvation. And if you'd like to receive him, you can. But you have to come bankrupt. You can't come bringing a righteousness of your own. You must come in need of the righteousness that God can gift you, that he'll bless you with if you come through the cross. God will either save you through his son or he won't save you at all. He'll either save you totally by what Jesus did or he cannot save you. He will not save you. Call upon him. Ask him. Lord Jesus, save me. Our Father, we have saturated our minds this morning in a whole chapter of Scripture. And thank you for its power to renew us, to change the way we think. We know that when we meet you in heaven, if we're saved, the only regrets we might have are that we did not more passionately and consistently and faithfully share the good news with people who need it. We know we can't win everybody, but we can win somebody. I pray for the blitz as it will go out from here, from Graniteville, from Grace. that that would be an invitation for some to come on Easter and for others the first in a series of invitations that you might use to bring someone into the kingdom. Give us the burden that Jesus has. Help us to believe what he said. Even if we stand alone, I'd rather, Father, stand alone in the truth than in a crowded place where people have embraced falsehood. Lord Jesus, you said more about hell than you said about heaven. You came to save us from its grasp. Thank you for what you did. Thank you that your payment was not partial, but total, so that to be absent from the body is to be immediately present with you. We bless you in your holy name. Amen. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877 787 7478 
and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 027. Remember that you can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.